welcome to Greenville Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. On the show, we share how notable leaders apply environment, social, and governance factors in business. Tara Weber is the Western correspondent with BNN Bloomberg. Based in Alberta, much of her coverage focuses on the province's oil and gas sector and its impact on the Canadian economy and abroad. In this episode, we explore how companies are telling their sustainability stories to the media. Thanks for joining us, Tara. Let's kick things off. Tell us about you. What's your background? I basically started out in journalism very young. I had a teacher in grade 10, and as part of our career and personal planning class, we had to do an internship. And so he encouraged me to do mine at a local radio station in Kelowna, BC. And that's essentially how I started off. And I did go to university and I did just a general arts program in linguistics and English literature. But then after that, I did a postgrad at Ryerson and I've just been working in the industry ever since, really working in Toronto and Windsor and Vancouver and Calgary, and then shorter stints in Charlottetown and Yellowknife even. But it was, I guess, quite a ways into it, about 2015. At that time, I kind of thought, the industry had changed so much and I was ready for something new. So at that point, I ended up going back to school and doing an MBA in global energy management and sustainable development at Haskane at the University of Calgary. And that led me into a whole new part of my career, which was business news. So I now work at BNM Bloomberg. So what are some common mistakes when pitching media? blanket pitch that you know they just sent the exact same thing to all different journalists all over the place and they don't know exactly what it is you do what you cover um you know and so I get this a lot like I'll get uh, someone pitching me an interview or an event that might be taking place in say New Jersey a I don't really cover anything on that side of the country and definitely not in states and it's often not even in the field that I'm covering, which is a lot of natural resources, that sort of thing. I also get a lot of people who try to pitch me uh, their CEO or somebody that they want to talk about something and I don't actually book the guests. So I, I guess what it comes down to is not knowing what it is I do and what I would actually be able to do for them. And then they'll constantly be writing me and asking me for an update on their emails. And I'm like, I can't respond to them all because they're not even pitching me exactly what it is that I would be able to do for them. Right. So, so taking the time to understand, I guess, the, the beats that you cover. Right. And yeah. And make it also something that's interesting. Like a lot of people have a different idea of what's interesting for news than it may be for the actual news industry. So they might think something their company is doing is really interesting because it is for them or it will show the company in a really positive light. And that's advertising. If you know, you want to put a time, you want to pay for an ad to go out and you want it covered in such a way. But really when it becomes a news item, it, what it means there is that it's interesting or it's new or it's a development that would be of interest to the wider public. How should companies effectively pitch news and stories to the media? What are best practices? me know what I do what I cover and sometimes I will actually be able to flip those emails over to the right person it could be the guest chaser in Toronto for us it could be a local newsroom here Uh, but sometimes I don't even have the time and if they haven't put the time into knowing who it is they want to reach then I mean I do what I can but you can't always do that so I guess effectively being able to pitch the person that you know is the best fit for your story as opposed to just pitching everyone and hoping it lands somewhere What are some tips for conducting a live media interview? 
So in regular times, I guess what it would be is just really being comfortable. Because I think one thing that is lost sometimes is that most leaders of organizations are very charismatic. You know, they're leaders for a reason and it's good to let that personality show. And that's something that's really hard to do virtually. Um, the other thing is to make sure they really know their stuff, that they know um, what it is uh, that you're going to be asking. I think it's pretty easily anticipated sometimes what people are going to want to know about the initiative you're undertaking. And, and sometimes that's where I think people can trip up if they're not anticipating and some of that a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I also have to ask the hard questions, you know, things that the public expects to be asked, things they want to know about. And, and that's where the media has a really unique position to do that on behalf of everyone else who has to go do things for their own day job. So it's a really important role. What are some common misconceptions people have about the media? PR and even CEOs tell me that they don't want a particular topic raised during an interview. And, you know, you have to be really clear on that. You have to say, well, I'm asking you questions on behalf of the general public who doesn't get a chance to do that. And you can't not ask something that they and you would expect to have asked during that interview. Um, so they can respond to it any way they choose. But at the end of the day, that's kind of how it goes. The other big misconception is that the media is somehow in cahoots with government or big organizations or big business. And, you know, I've never seen that happen. I've never been influenced to tell a story in a certain way. And company management in media is very much separate from the editorial decisions that are made every day. And so really that perception or misconception is a lack of knowledge of how newsrooms work, I'd say. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that's interesting, too, is that even from a journalism perspective, I, I think it's in the code of conduct or something like that, that um, the, your job is to be unbiased. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that it's yeah. literally ingrained in the profession, that, that that's something that um, is, is core definitely. And I think one thing that's profession. confused a lot of people more, more recently is the prevalence of blogs and, you know, other sorts of online websites that don't have that same kind of unbiased approach. And so a lot of times people don't know where to turn for that because they don't trust the media anymore because they think everything's media. So I know from friends who are, say, on my Facebook feed or elsewhere that they'll be like, well, I read it here. And you're like, well, that's that's someone's blog or that's a right wing or left wing pundit who has a very obvious reason to say things the way that in which they're saying it. And so it, it gets really difficult when everyone's being kind of combined in the same thing as the media, when a lot of the people shouldn't be necessarily in that bowl in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess that's where some of the importance of the fact checking and um, thinking critically comes yeah, in. Um, for sure, definitely. And I think that. that's something our society is almost forgotten or less able to do now is that critical thinking. Like, where am I getting this information from? Why is it those people are saying it in the way in which they're saying it? And, it, and I don't know how you bring that back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's quite a feat, but it definitely I think people are, yeah. are craving that. Um, so I guess pivoting the conversation a little bit into the sustainability side of things, how are businesses responding to the need for sustainability and ESG strategies from a communications Oh, doing it better all the time and increasingly so. So really the so-called good news story, what the company is really trying to do, um, 
that's something companies are always trying to get out about their organization and it is becoming more of the norm and that perhaps is where it's getting increasingly difficult for some companies to get that message out because it's not really a news story to hear of a company say recycling or building more sustainability into their business for example uh, you think about so many companies in the oil patch that are working to reduce their water usage intensity per barrel or other sorts of things like that. It, it often just makes sense that they're doing that because it's reducing their overall costs. And so any individual company pitching that they're doing that doesn't really make it because everyone's kind of doing that now, you know. So to get communications about it, it almost now needs to be even bigger and better than what others are already doing in order to raise that bar in a significant way and get that kind of coverage. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an, an interesting point. It's yeah, how are you really doing something above and beyond maybe pure compliance or something that is essentially a yeah. cost savings to you? Um, that might be interesting to people. Um, so I guess on that note, who are some companies that are telling their CSRs Well, it typically is well? the large corporations. You know, they have their communications and their brand and, and all of that pretty much down pat. They have taken ownership of their impact on society. And you see some of the brands that have really embraced it and actually made that part of their brand. So obviously the Patagonias, the Mac, that really works into what they're doing. And it's also working when it comes to consumers, because a lot of them really feel that by using that brand that somehow they're doing their part as well. And especially for younger generations, we've seen that with Tom's, you know, those shoes where you buy one and then they give a pair away, you know, that's part of their MO right away. And one of the one that sticks with me is Dick's Sporting's Goods. That was the one in the States that stopped selling assault weapons right after one of the big high school shootings. So really taking a stand as well and, you know, standing in what they believe in. If it, not, if it doesn't always necessarily help their bottom line, but going back to what we cover here, so if we look at airlines or the oil sands, you know, they really have to contend with their impact on society and they know that. So here in Calgary, some of the big names we're always hearing about, you know, WestJet, Suncor, Synovus, they come to mind right away because they're pretty strong in communicating what it is they're doing and doing well. But in general, you know, many oil and gas companies do struggle to convey what they're doing well when it comes to reducing their footprint. There's a perception that is in society that's really hard to break through. And so those are the ones that stand out as maybe doing a little bit more than others. How can companies effectively tell their ESG story? So the big thing is, you know, it's one thing to set a benchmark in your, um, you know, your guidance for the year ahead or set percentage targets of what you're going to do. And that's not a very sexy story at the end of the day. You know, I'm going to reduce my emissions by 20 percent. You know, at the end of the day, it's almost better to have a story where you've shown some tangible or actual evidence of something that's working or changing things for the better. And that can be really hard to do. And you know, some companies don't do that as well as others. And one of the things I'd say that does help, and it's not even, uh, it shouldn't seem like a big deal, but it does. And that's just having a face to your organization, you know? So some of those companies I was mentioning before, when you think about WestJet, Suncor, Synovus, you know, you can picture the CEO or maybe even put the name to them. That person's really key in sharing what it is the company does and does well. And, you know, a lot of companies we see, they hunker down, they're just doing their thing. They don't respond to media calls. They, you don't hear them a lot, but it's hard for the public then to really see and understand what steps they're taking as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point, especially in this day and age is just kind of humanizing your your brand or yeah. your company. Um, 
And I think that from like a, an ESG and CSR report perspective, I've noticed that some of the reports I've, I've gone through, they kind of read like media kits. Um, and so going through it's, it's, yeah, who are you benchmarking against and, and show me the numbers um, and talk about some of the, the difficult things that, that your brand or your industry is, is tackling. Yeah, when I go through those. Um, which I think. Sorry, I was just going to say, when I go through those reports, it, you're right. They have all these pictures of animals and like trees and other kind of um, wetlands and things that really put a picture on what it is they're doing. And you're right. They are a bit of a media kit in and of themselves, which I think does help. People are visual in general and they almost need to see that. Yeah. So, so is it possible to over communicate a company's ESG and sustainability? I don't really story? think so, to be honest. I think a lot of times people don't hear what you say the first time. They may get it a little bit the second time, but it, it usually takes a few times for people to really internalize the message that you're trying to get out anyway. And really, that's what a company's public relations team should be doing. That's why so many of these companies have big PR and communications teams really is trying to get out the good things that the company is doing. And as I was saying before, that doesn't necessarily always mean it's going to get media attention. That's not really the journalist's job to give, you know, the a company a, a pat on the back for what it's doing. But at the end of the day, it is. I think it is a company's responsibility to really show shareholders that they take these things seriously and that it's definitely on their minds and on their radar. Yeah, I think it's um, that hits on a lot of interesting, I guess, trends that I'm observing too, even about how some companies are going so far as to develop not just an investor relations team, um, but an actual investor engagement strategy that kind of runs parallel to a communications uh, strategy, but is targeted at at investors. Um, and so it's just interesting to see the power of of communications and how it's extending into different areas of, of mm -hmm. the business. Yeah, definitely. It's start. <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to say, it's the virtual interview. See, they are a little bit more difficult. But um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but that's one thing we're seeing for sure is it's um, something companies have taken a lot more seriously and they recognize the need for. So they can, it's almost not necessarily the battering someone over the head with good messaging. It's more just trying to get that out over and over again to really show people that they, they do take it seriously and that it's important to them as an organization as well. So what sustainability trends are you seeing? Well, there's so many different things that companies are working on. I'd say two big ones, though, that I'm noticing more and more is one would be obviously technology. You know, we're seeing a lot more when it comes to advancements in innovation and that sort of thing. Just here in Calgary, again, Imperial Oil down there, they've got a big research and development lab. You know, they look into things such as really reducing steam and water. They're part of COSIA. So they share that information amongst other oil and gas sector um, competitors even. And, you know, it, it, they're finding processes upstream and downstream. That's really important. Suncor is another big one when it comes to technology and innovation. They've pushed forward because of COVID-19 even more quickly with their Suncor 4.0. So we have the autonomous haulers that are being brought in, things like that. All of these things are really going to change things in a major way when we talk about companies and their impact, you know, just bringing in these innovations. And then the other one that I'm really noticing more and more and consistently so is we're seeing more companies really embracing involvement of First Nations communities within their organizations. This is something we get press releases on 
a lot really so you know more recently you've had tc energy announcing those that agreement with the purchase in the keystone xl pipeline by first nations communities along the route you've had synovas committing uh, 10 million per year for the next five years when it comes to building housing for first nations communities and then suncor really with that historic agreement with the nikasu and fort mckay first nations and purchasing that 49 percent stake in their east tank farm all of these things they're really recognizing uh, when it comes to these companies in a bigger way of their impact on local communities and how to involve these local communities who for a long time were shut out of a lot of these advances and involvement. And I think that's something I've really been noticing. Yeah, that's something that I'm, I'm hoping to, to cover in the next couple months is the uh, Indigenous kind of engagement side of things and and how, what different companies are doing to kind of move move the dial in yeah, that? Yeah, and, and I think it's becoming more recognizable that it's something that companies need to do more so than they ever have in the past. And I think it's opening up a, a lot of opportunity on both sides as well. So how do you think Canadian media will change in the next five years? Probably not for the better. It's likely to keep shrinking. I mean, that's something we've been seeing so much over the last two decades. And, you know, we were talking about technology and how that's affecting some industries. And obviously media is not immune to that. Uh, you just think of a single report. You used to have a whole team assigned to a story. Now it's one reporter that does the research, lines up the interviews, then shoots and writes it and edits it. That's one person from a team from about, I guess three or four when I started and even more uh, prior to my time. So I'm not sure how much further it can shrink at this point. And the other side of that is because all this technology is getting more and more affordable to so many, it means practically everyone on the street has access to an iPhone or a way to create their own footage. That in itself is a help to newsrooms, but it means they, they need less people really to cover events if people are sending in that video as well. And then I guess also on the other side of technology, you have newscasts that are competing with streaming services. So when people aren't watching the television shows that are on you know, the major networks and they're watching streaming and set, instead that affects the amount of revenue they're getting for commercials in between them. So all of that affects the, you know, the amount of revenue that the company has to put into their news divisions as well. So uh, I, over the next five years, I think we're going to see it shrinking and it's not necessarily a good thing because journalists are those people in your community that are finding out what's happening, they're uncovering things and they're holding your politicians and other decision makers to account. Yeah, I think that that's something that um, I've grown to truly appreciate journalists just from the, uh, the professionalism, the training, the in integrity. Um, it's something that unfortunately, things might need to get a little bit worse before people realize um, the service that, that journalists have done for society. Yeah, I agree. But I also see it's been stretched so thin for so long, people have almost forgotten in some ways of how important it can be. Because, you know, there's so many people that aren't able to focus and take two or three days to uncover a great story. So, it, you know, when those people are stretched really thin and they're not necessarily on a single beat where they can uncover things in their area, they might be, say, one reporter could be covering City Hall one night and crime another. Then, you know, you name it, a fire even or a school board meeting. They, it's hard to stay on top of everything all the time as one person. Yeah, and literally wearing all of the hats, it sounds yeah. like. <laughs>
So in the last couple of years, you were named a top 40 under 40 and received a University of Calgary Haskane Alumni Achievement Award. What has helped you get to where you are in your media career? And what advice would you have for others who want to set off in a similar direction? Ooh, big question. Um, I guess <laughs> I guess I would just say keep plugging away and working hard. But the one thing that I think you can do is differentiate yourself from, and that's in any industry, not just in mine, but, you know, increase your skill set outside of what you're learning on your, in the job with your cohort, you know, like for me, the best thing I did was go back to school and focus on a particular area. It really allowed me then to get a job where I can focus on that particular area and have that so-called beat, you know? So that's what I was talking about. Most reporters can't do that in a day. They have to run around and cover so many different things. But when you differentiate yourself, then you can further differentiate yourself by continuing to hone in on one area. So I guess that would be what I would say is to really take control over your own education and career progression. I am not a fan of people thinking that the company is going to do that for them. I don't think that most companies do, especially for our generation anymore. But the best piece of career advice I ever heard was it's not a career ladder anymore. For most of us, it's a career jungle gym. So you have to take a step back, turn your focus elsewhere, make a lateral move even just in order to move ahead the way they might have in the past. That's, um, I love that. That's such a great analogy. Yeah. Um, the gym. <laughs> I know it must be nice to have a clear ladder. Hey, who were those people that got that? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Those, those days are gone, but <laughs> well, thanks so much, Tara. This has been as a communications person, I am fascinated, um, by your commentary on all of this and, and the work that you do. And I think that um, this is a topic that a lot of businesses and a lot of listeners to this podcast are extremely interested in. So thanks so much for joining us and for sharing your Thank insights. Thank you. And I have to say, as a communicator, I completely got tongue-tied there earlier in the interview. So don't hold that one against me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're very eloquent. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Kendall. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. Please submit guest ideas and ESG-related questions via our social media at Green Bull Radio on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.